Good morning, everyone. Unfortunately, my name is not Reverend Harry Bridge. I'm the substitute um, uh, MC for you today. But uh, thank you uh, for gathering together here for the spring commencement of the Institute of Buddhist Studies. We'd like to begin today's ceremony with a short service with a chanting of Jusege.
Thank you very much. This time I'd like to um, introduce um, some of the IBS uh, faculty members, trustees, and special guests. I'd like to begin by introducing Dr. Richard Payne, the Dean of the Institute of Buddhist Studies. Dr. Paul Harrison, today's keynote speaker. I'd also like to introduce Dr. Leroy Morista. He's the chair of the IBS Board of Trustees. And Reverend Dr. Sagan Yamoka of the Institute of Buddhist Studies and Minister Emeritus of the Buddhist Churches of America. I'd also like to refer, uh, introduce Professor Daijaku Kinst and Professor Yufko Kurioka. We do have some members of the Board of Trustees here as well. We have uh, Reverend Jerry Hirano, Reverend Marvin Harada, we have Mr. Richard Endo. Mr. Michael Jones, Mr. Charles Ozaki, also Reverend uh, Gerald Sakamoto, way in the back over there. Behind the camera is Professor uh, Scott Mitchell. <laughs> and I'd like to introduce today's, uh, the graduates. Uh, graduates today, we have uh, Kenji Akahoshi, Reverend David Fujimoto, John Turner, and representing his wife, Mutsumi Wonder, we have Mr. Alan Wondra. Thank you very much. I hope I didn't forget anybody. This time, I'd like to uh, uh, ask, call upon Dr. Richard Payne, the Dean of Institute of Buddhist Studies, uh, and also Dr. Leroy Morista, uh, the Chair of the Trustees, to uh, deliver their opening remarks. Thank you, Reverend Matsumoto, uh, and thank you for filling in at the last moment uh, for our program. Today is, of course, a very exciting day. It is the culmination of years of work by many people and years of support to those people by many other people. It is both a time of great happiness because of the coming to fruition of those efforts, the completion of work that has been guiding someone's life for a long time, some longer than others. <laughs> it is also a time of great sadness because it means that those who have become close friends and colleagues in our joint venture are going to be leaving us and going on to other responsibilities. Uh, so it is certainly a time of mixed feelings, at least for me, uh, a time of both happiness that uh, this has been, point has been reached, and also sadness to know that from now on it'll be when they drop in again. So, thank you very much. I'd like to ask Dr. Marishta to give his few comments. Thank you, Dean Payne. I want to welcome all of you here today. I have a few notes here I need to get out of my pocket here if I could find my way. Um, but I want to extend uh, my welcome on behalf of the board of the Institute of Buddhist Studies and to congratulate all of the graduates. 
for their hard work and their efforts in completing their uh, master's degrees here. We're very pleased with them. I'm really honored to be here to do this and uh, on behalf of the board and to congratulate, as I said, uh, Kenji Akahoshi, David Fujimoto, John Turner, and Mitsumi Wandra. Uh, as this is the next step in terms of their work within the Buddhist uh, religion and hopefully all become ministers at, uh, and take on various uh, positions at various temples at the, and how important that is um, for the Buddhist churches of America as well as for um, all of us that want to continue the practice of Shin Buddhism in the United States. I know they've taken various paths here and a couple people came from Orange County and some from San Jose Buddhist Church, and I got to know Ken a bit on the board, and um, for those of you that don't know, he's a dentist, and I guess he's a retiring dentist, is, right? He's now sold his practice, and so that's really quite uh, a different type of path to get here, and one from uh, Hawaii, in the, from the Buddhist Study Center in Hawaii. And uh, commencements are a ritual that we go through in terms of uh, having clo bringing closure to one path, uh, one segment of our lives, and and this is it's an important ritual. Uh, I didn't fully understand that when I was younger. I didn't go to my undergraduate one, but I did go to my other, other uh, degrees that I received and went to those. But it is an important rite of passage in terms of acknowledging that you're completing one stage of a, a path in your life and going on to the next stage. Uh, it's a time to reflect, to think about, and to express gratitude and appreciation to all those people that have assisted you to get to where you are at this point in time, your parents, your family, relatives, friends, all of your senseis who have helped to guide you to this point in time. And time to think, I think, about all of the interconnectedness of our experiences and of our lives. And uh, so it made me think, as I was thinking of what I would even say right now about that and thinking of all the links in my life that got me to this point in time. So I thought I'd like to share a little personal uh, background about me and why I'm actually even here and how I've gotten to be on the board. And I look at Sensei here, he's one of the reasons why. But, um, and, uh, and then to be uh, honored to be selected as asked to be chair of the board. Um, but uh, I grew up in the Central Valley in, in a little town, tiny town called Delray. I always say I was from Fresno. People say, where are you really from? And I have to tell them <laughs> I'm from Delray, which is a little, little tiny town. Grew up on the countryside there and was, uh, uh, lived on a farm. Sanger was the next closest town, and, and then that's where I went to high school, and then Fresno was the largest, big, the big town, right? Mm -hmm. uh, no, nowhere near as big as it is now, um, but uh, grew up there, and went to, uh, we had a small community in Delray where we didn't have a temple, but we had a, a little community center, and we gathered there, and once in a while, the minister from Fresno would come, Reverend Hata would come, and later Reverend Masuda. Uh, I got to know uh, Dr. Kiku Taira, who was my family doctor, and who then I found out was, you know, quite uh, renowned in the in the Buddhist church. But I uh, learned a lot from him, and so he was somebody that uh, I just uh, learned different things from in terms of helping people and assisting people. Then I went to UC Berkeley, came up here as an undergrad, met Dennis Fujimoto, who's now a minister up in Ontario and uh, on the Idaho Oregon border there. And uh, and through that, I met people in IBS, Reverend Harada and. Reverend Shinseki and Reverend, the late Reverend Hamada uh, ended up going to Japan and uh, through Dennis was introduced to his brother who was finishing uh, studying in uh, Japan, uh, Rinban uh, Fujimoto, Ken Fujimoto, and, 
and uh, and actually I don't think he remembers, but Reverend Sa uh, Sakamoto was there at that time, and Okamoto, and Reverend Tanaka, Reverend Oshita. So I met all these different people over there at that point in time, and so it's kind of interesting that I went this way because I I wouldn't consider myself very really religious. My wife said you shouldn't say that, but then, <laughs> but I, what I haven't done is I haven't always gone to the temple all through my life. At different points in time, I would go and then I wouldn't go and and uh, was nothing to do with uh, not believing in, the, in Buddhism. But uh, through Dennis, I met uh, Reverend Hogan Fujimoto and his wife and got to be very close to them. I was kind of their adopted son and uh, they kind of took care of me when I was at, at Berkeley. And then through uh, Reverend Fujimoto, he gave me a letter of introduction when I went out to Harvard to get my uh, doctorate degree there and uh, gave me a letter of introduction to Professor Masatoshi Nagatomi. And I got to know Ms. Professor Nagatomi and Mrs. Nagatomi very well. And she was from the Central Valley, so she was all excited when I met <laughs> Professor Nagatomi. And it was all these connections. And my wife is uh, Barbara Hedani, who grew up in San Francisco. And so her father was optometrist, and he had gotten glasses, and his father had gotten glasses <laughs> from her father. And it was like a little, little circle. And I mean, what it, what it tells me is how interconnected we all are in our lives and how all these things kind of come back around and, and uh, make a big difference. And so they took care of us in, in, in uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts. We'd have Oshogatsu there every year, and uh, yeah, he was quite a character. And then, and then lo and behold, he, you know, he passes away, unfortunately, but he bestows upon IBS all of his <laughs> library. And so when that was brought back here, I came back at that time, and I was just being asked. And uh, I, what had happened is I'd come back the Bay Area after I got my degree, and uh, and then we, my wife and I had two sons, so we decided we wanted to raise them as Buddhists, and uh, brought them, and she, she was raised as Buddhist, and brought them to the Berkeley Buddhist Temple. So through that, I met Reverend Matsumoto, and uh, befriended him, and uh, he befriended me, and out of that, then uh, when uh, Mrs. Nagatomi came to, uh, for the ceremony in terms of bringing the library of Professor Nagatomi to the IBS that uh, then uh, at that time the, uh, I had been asked whether I'd be willing to be a member of the uh, board and so then I met Dean Payne at that point in time and so what I'm saying is I guess there's a lot of links in one's life that get you to the path and the point you are and there will be continuing for each of you in terms of going forward all those types of linkages that will occur and the people in the past who have assisted you who have helped to bring you to this point and who will continue to, to guide you and to help you along the way. And uh, for me, that's kind of how I got to this point in time and, uh, and to now be the chair is really kind of pretty amazing to me uh, to think about that. Uh, but I really think uh, IBS is very extremely important to the future of Shin Buddhism in the United States and in terms of us trying to prepare ministers and, and get encourage other people to become ministers take the place of all the wonderful ministers that I've gotten to know who, who would like to retire at some point in time, as we all would like to. Uh, but we need to have the next uh, generation coming along and in terms of uh, being prepared to, to take their place. And so uh, I, I think it's a very important role of the Institute and something that I really want to help to nurture and to help to foster as we move forward. So again, congratulations to all of you, and I wish you all the very, very best. Thank you, Dr. Morishita and Dr. Payne.
This time it's my uh, great honor and pleasure to be able to introduce uh, our commencement sp uh, speaker uh, for this year. Uh, he is Dr. Paul Harrison of Stanford University. And unfortunately, because I was just recruited to be the uh, chairperson only minutes before the ceremony, I didn't <laughs> wasn't able to prepare a proper introduction. Let me just say that uh, Dr. Harrison is a renowned scholar of Buddhism, Pure Land Buddhism in particular. I had the pleasure of, of, uh, of reading many of his articles and hearing uh, one of his presentations. Uh, it's a wonderful presentation on the largest sutra. Uh, so he's a, a, a person uh, not only of great renown, but uh, he has uh, tremendous insights. And I'm sure that he'll share many of them with us today. So without further ado, today's commencement speaker, Dr. Paul Harrison. Well, good morning, everybody, esteemed colleagues, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Whenever I put this um, outfit on, I feel slightly silly. <laughs> um, in our graduation ceremonies, we continue to wear the hat, which makes it even sillier. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, you feel like an actor in a Shakespearean play. <laughs> Fortunately, we don't have to wear the breeches and stockings, <laughs> let alone the codpiece, but um, <laughs> there's a mixture of solemnity and ridiculousness when we dress up like this, because um, in fact the, um, the regalia has a serious purpose. It symbolizes the fact that what we're doing now finds its place within a venerable educational tradition with deep root roots in the European past. And so today we, we not only celebrate the achievements of our graduates, but we um, celebrate the values of that educational tradition. But we're here basically, of course, to congratulate the graduates on their achievements, and these achievements have culminated in the writing of their theses for the uh, master's degree in Buddhist studies. And I looked at their thesis topics with great interest. Uh, Dean Payne sent me some um, some brief notes on them, and um, there's a range of uh, topics addressed. We have the power of ritual speech in the practices advocated by Hornen and Shinran. We have a thesis on Shinran's notion of attaining the state of the truly settled in this present life in Japanese Gensho Shojoju. Um, we have uh, another thesis on the two aspects of deep mind and a fourth thesis on faith and religious conversion, um, both in the life of Shinran and from a contemporary um, perspective. And you'll see that in uh, all those cases, the thesis topics relate specifically to Shin Buddhism and its doctrines and history, but they also deal with broader issues in the study of religion, and they sit within a wider framework, a wider conversation, if you like, of Buddhist studies. And it's about Buddhist studies that I wish to say a few words uh, today um, before I come back to uh, the work of our graduates. Now, Buddhist studies is a field. I don't think we can call it a discipline, since it has no single disciplinary character, but it's a field. Of, uh, of intellectual endeavor, which can be said to have come of age in recent decades. And it's an exciting time for the field. And I think this is not only because of the we, what we might call the developmental challenges of moving from adolescence to adulthood, and there's been a certain amount of soul-searching, which is typical of adolescence, which has gone on amongst 
scholars of Buddhism, and I think that's an in indication that the field is is passing a developmental hurdle. Um, but I think it's it's uh, it's correct to say that Buddhist studies has now found its feet as a truly polymethodic and multidisciplinary area of study, and and one key element of that I think has been a very strong turn to the social sciences, which has given Buddhist studies a theoretical depth and a range of interests quite different from what it used to have when it was devoted primarily to the study of texts and doctrines. So that's been happening. The field has been changing and developing, but other um, exciting things have also been taking place. And amongst them, um, for me particularly exciting, are the new discoveries in the Buddhist world. And by that I'm, I'm, I'm referring primarily, but not exclusively, to the, the new uh, manuscripts of Buddhist texts, which have been coming out of um, places like Afghanistan and Pakistan. Uh, unfortunate countries, both of them, because of the, uh, the political trouble and the strife and warfare going on. And of course that has, in a paradoxical way, accentuated the emergence of these new materials for the study of Buddhism. So what we've found since around the beginning of the 1990s is, um, and of course this has just continued into the new millennium, it's a flood of new manuscript material. Much of it extremely fragmentary and damaged, but still significant quantities of texts. These are texts for which previously we had only Chinese and Tibetan translations, and now at last we can see them in Sanskrit, or parts of them in Sanskrit. And even when we had the Sanskrit versions, now we've got different and sometimes substantially older versions of those texts in that language. More exciting still, we're finding texts that we've never seen before. So these are new Buddhist texts that were hitherto unknown. Sutras, that is to say the teachings of the Buddha, the discourses, Vinaya texts dealing with the uh, monastic discipline, Abhidharma treatises, Avadanas or stories or legend cycles, poetry, even plays, inscriptions that were written and read and used in Buddhist monasteries. So this is this is a sort of a complete opening up of our of our field of vision. And uh, Another thing which is unexpected is that these new, new finds are not only in Sanskrit. We now have substantial portions of a Buddhist canon or canons in Gandhari, a language which previously we had only a few scattered fragments. So it was a kind of hypothesis that there once existed um, a whole uh, raft of Buddhist literature in Gandhari, and now we have that as a result of what has been coming out of Afghanistan and Pakistan. But of course they're not the only sources for this new material. We should also mention the um, discoveries, quote unquote, uh, from the People's Republic of China. Um, I say discoveries in scare quotes because in fact they've been there all this time. Uh, it's just that nobody's looked at them. And most of these have been Sanskrit manuscripts held in monasteries and in the library of the Portala in Tibet. And so these have been also um, becoming available uh, uh, to, for our study. And I think the most exciting um, example, but certainly not the only one, is the Sanskrit manuscript of the Vimalakirti Sutra, which we didn't have before, and that's been 
That was a tremendous sensation for scholars of Buddhism. Um, and in fact, I'm reading that at the moment with some of my students, uh, one of whom is a graduate of the IBS. So uh, that's uh, a sort of very interesting experience. And then later in June at the Mangalam Centre in Berkeley, we're going to have a special uh, workshop on translation which draws students from many uh, universities in America and even abroad to work together on the problems of translating Buddhist texts. So, and we're using the Vimalakirti as our basis to do that. Uh, so there are all sorts of discoveries in the People's Republic of China and, and, and Tibet, um, which have broadened um, our view of the Buddhist tradition and its history. So surprisingly, this has given Buddhist philology, that is to say the study of texts, a whole new lease on life, just at the point where some of our colleagues were cheerfully announcing its passing <laughs> and seemed indeed all too ready to dance on its grave. Um, so for Buddhist philology is not dead, I'm happy to say. <laughs> to borrow Mark Twain's words, it's rumours of its death have been exaggerated. So what do these new manuscripts, what do all these new materials tell us about Buddhism? Well, much of it is consistent with what we already know which is a little bit disappointing for people who, you know, want absolute sensations. We have not found that there were five noble truths <laughs> <laughs> or, that the, or that the noble path was tenfold, nothing like that. But still, uh, there have been many uh, interesting uh, discoveries and, and there's new information that we're still in the uh, processing, actually. So um, we haven't got to the the bottom of the problem yet, but I mean, the first thing is, is, is to realize that so much more has been lost than we knew. So many Buddhist texts of just, just working on the basis of what we've been rediscovering, we can see that there's probably an enormous quantity of Buddhist material that we've, we've not yet found. Um, so if we look at particular texts, I mean, of course, uh, in this context, we can't go into a detailed study. Um, but the uh, larger Sukhavati Vyuha, the, the Dai Amida Kyo, was, was mentioned just now, and I've been working on that. We found a fragmentary manuscript of that from Bamiyan in Afghanistan, um, which has been uh, edited and published and translated, and that shows us that the text was circulating in a somewhat different um, form from the Sanskrit manuscript as we knew it. And so we can see, looking at that text and looking at others that have been found, that we can start to rewrite the early history of what is known as Pure Land Buddhism. And um, we can also see that, as lo uh, along with the cult of uh, the Buddha Amitabha, the cult of the Buddha Akshobhya was very important. And, and here uh, I might mention the Bajar manuscripts in Pakistan, uh, which are written uh, in Karoshti and in, in the Gandhari language, which date from the late 1st and early 2nd century. So this is very old material. And among them we have substantial remains of a hitherto unknown Mahayana Sutra in Gandhari with extensive references to Akshobhya. So what we can see now looking at these texts is there was a kind of competition between these two strands of Mahayana Buddhism one devoted to the Buddha Amitabha and rebirth in Sukhavati, the other devoted to um, Akshobhya and rebirth in Avirati. And uh, so we can see 
we have a better look, we have a better view of this um, unfolding of the Pure Land tradition. My own research um, indicates that even in India, the cult of Amitabha underwent considerable development. The standard view seems to be that it was relatively stable in India and then underwent considerable changes and modifications in East Asia and China and Japan. But in fact, it's quite clear, looking at this new evidence, that it changed quite markedly in India in ways which prefigured what was to happen in China and later in Japan. So there are many of these recent finds from the greater Indian cultural area which are altering our understanding of the history of Buddhism in that region and especially the history of Mahayana Buddhism. And, and my point here is that if we want to understand where Shin Buddhism comes from, if we want to understand its foundational inspiration, we have to pay careful attention to these new discoveries and to the scholarship being done on them. So, we have new material to work with, but Buddhist studies has changed in other ways as well, and of course, obviously, there, there has been the impact of technological innovations. And I speak as one who typed his own master's thesis on a manual typewriter <laughs> using carbon paper to generate the... <laughs> remember carbon paper? Uh, some of you will. Okay. Um, so, uh, really, the way we do our work has been revolutionised by, obviously, the computer and by the, and by the digitisation of information and by the, the internet. And I think the most significant single effect event in the history of Buddhist studies in, in this uh, um, area is C-beta, is the digitization of the Chinese Buddhist canon, which has is, which is, uh, really revolutionized the way we do things. And of course now the Tibetan canon is uh, in the process of following suit. That's uh, not quite there yet, but it will come in the next year or so. And, and it's really appropriate that, that Buddhist studies should be revolutionized by technology because uh, we have to remember that Buddhism was itself largely responsible for one of the most significant technological advances in human history, which was the invention of printing. Right? That we owe to the Buddhist tradition. So it, it, it seems to be particularly appropriate that now uh, Buddhist studies is being uh, impacted in this way. So along with new material and new methods of dealing with it, with it, we have new institutional, what I might call institutional challenges and opportunities. And uh, two that I could mention, uh, one is the increasingly, uh, rapidly increasing importance of private sponsorship. The quest for funding has become a commonplace of modern academic life, never used to be thought about, but now it is. Um, uh, scholars must also become fundraisers to preserve their fields of study and of course there's some reluctance to do this and certainly different levels of aptitude but the novelty I think here is because this is not a new thing obviously is that even public universities are relying ever more heavily on the generosity of donors and patrons to preserve fields like Buddhist studies it's absolutely essential and another contemporary development which I'm watching with great interest is the increased engagement on the part of the Sangha, the Buddhist order, in higher education, especially in the Western mode. And again, this is not completely new. 
Japan is in fact a notable example of this having happened a long time ago, a hundred years ago or more, with the various Buddhist universities founded in the Meiji period. And we could mention as an example Ryukoku, which has a special link with the IBS, whose history in fact goes back to 1639 to the Edo period, uh, became a Ryukoku University in 1922, but it had already started in the Meiji period, transforming itself into an, a university on the modern pattern. So where Japan led the way so long ago, other nations are now following. The most uh, obvious is uh, Taiwan, where the Chinese Sangha is moving very vigorously into the field of, um, of education. And with this comes the challenge of developing Buddhism and Buddhist studies in ways which preserve the values of the committed perspective, the faith perspective, and yet respond to the requirements of Western scholarship. And often bridging these these two perspectives is uh, not entirely easy, but the two sides of the conversation must engage in, in a, uh, with mutual respect without either attempting to um, trump the other's values. So divinity schools at Western universities have been negotiating this path for centuries, and more uh, recently institutions like this one, like the Institute of Buddhist Studies, have been negotiating it too. So here too, as in a divinity school, the study of Buddhism is underwritten and fostered by a religious organization, but pursued in accordance with the traditional standards and values of Western academia, critical inquiry, intellectual honesty, respect for evidence, and so on. So there's a kind of bridging project here. So I, re I return to the thesis, thesis projects of the graduands, and I, and I note as before that they deal with issues specific to Shin Buddhism, but they also link into a broader framework of scholarly investigation. Ritual, especially its vocal or sonic aspects, human psychology and the models of mental and emotional functioning, ideas about salvation and what it means to be saved or not saved, faith and conversion, all these are issues of general importance in religious studies and in the study of Buddhism in all its varieties. Buddhism, in fact, provides us with a laboratory for investigating these matters. And how fortunate we are to be studying this tradition, not only because it is so rich, diverse, and interesting, but also because it is relatively underexplored, with so much even of the basic work remaining to be done. And now we have even more material to work with, so we have even a bigger job ahead of us. So this is a challenging and exciting point in the history of Buddhist studies and the study of Buddhism, whether one is inside the faith community or outside it. So in short, it's a great time to be in the field, which judging by the last 30 years, which is the time I've been engaged with it, is bound to develop in ways which at present we can, we can barely contemplate. I think we're unable to predict where it's going. So, I congratulate you on your choice of a field. It's a good one to be in. So I finish by, um, once again, congratulating the graduands and their parents and their teachers who can all be justifiably proud of their achievements. And I wish you well as you pursue your paths in the future as scholars, as ministers, as believers, or as all of those things. Well done.
Thank you very much, Dr. Harrison. A very exciting and encouraging appraisal of the state of Buddhist studies today. And as he indicated, we at IBS were engaged very deeply in this enterprise of bridging. I think that's uh, a very key term. Uh, indeed, I think as many of you know, IBS has many missions, uh, not only uh, to train and educate future uh, ministers, Buddhist Church of America and other Shin Buddhist uh, uh, sanghas, but also to be deeply engaged uh, in the field of Buddhist studies. Uh, and to, uh, within that con broader context, also to, uh, to investigate uh, the role and the place and the possibility of Shin Buddhism uh, within that broader field. So thank you very much for a very wonderful, uh, very uh, uh, suggestive uh, commencement address. At this time, we'd like to uh, call upon Dr. Payne uh, for the, the, the uh, this, is, this is why you all came today, <laughs> for the uh, conferral of the graduate degrees. Thank you very much. Trustees of the Institute of Buddhist Studies on the recommendation of the faculty have conferred upon G. Kenji Akahoshi the degree of Master of Buddhist Studies with all the rights and privileges pertaining thereto given at Berkeley, California, May 2010. Trustees of the Institute of Buddhist Studies on the recommendation of the faculty have conferred upon David Kazuyoshi Fujimoto the degree of Master of Buddhist Studies with all the rights and privileges pertaining thereto given at Berkeley, California, May 2010. Now, You've heard this before, so please bear with me. <laughs> the trustees of the Institute of Buddhist Studies on the recommendation of the faculty have conferred upon John Brett Turner, the degree of Master of Buddhist Studies with all the rights and privileges pertaining thereto, given at Berkeley, California, May 2010. The trustees of the Institute of Buddhist Studies on the recommendation of the faculty have conferred upon Mitsumi Fujiwara Wandra the degree of Master of Buddhist Studies with all the rights and privileges pertaining thereto given at Berkeley, California, May 2010, receiving four, Mrs. Wandra is her husband, Mr. Alan Wandra. We now have a very special event, which is the conferral of an honorary doctorate. The trustees of the Institute of Buddhist Studies hereby confer the degree of Doctor of Buddhist Studies Honoris Causa upon George T. Aratani in recognition of his support of the Institute of Buddhist Studies educational program. Presented at the graduation ceremony, 14th of May, 2010, Berkeley, California. Accepting for Mr. Aratani is Reverend Yamaoka. Mm -hmm. 
Thank you very much, everyone, and congratulations to all of our graduates. I know how much work all of you uh, put into your studies, and uh, uh, you did a great job. We're very proud of you, and we wish you nothing but success in the next step of your journey. Uh, and uh, to Mitsumi, far away in Kyoto, <laughs> you did a great job, and we look forward to seeing you again. Uh, just a, uh, a very brief word, if I could, about uh, Mr. George Aratani. He was unable to be with us today. I know he really wanted to uh, be here uh, in Berkeley for today's ceremony. Uh, he's a longtime supporter of the Institute of Buddhist Studies and uh, the Buddhist Churches of America. Uh, he, in particular, has been a tremendous supporter of the Center for uh, Contemporary Shin Buddhist Studies. Uh, he's a great... Uh, um, believer that uh, in the, the fact that, that uh, Shin Buddhism uh, really needs to develop in, in new ways, in, in, in uh, unique ways, uh, that it needs to uh, have uh, the study of Shin Buddhism must develop uh, both a breadth and, and a depth uh, within in the context of Western society. And that's, uh, uh, with all of those thoughts in mind, he, he has uh, been a constant supporter of the Institute of Buddhist Studies uh, and uh, study of Shin Buddhism. So we want to congratulate Mr. Aratani as well. With this, we'll bring uh, today's uh, commencement ceremony to a close. Uh, we thank all of you for joining us today. I know some of you came uh, from Orange County and Hawaii and, and, and other places, so thank you very much. We would like to give you a chance to uh, Oshoko uh, to burn incense. And then uh, we have a wonderful and delicious reception for all of you prepared in the lobby.